Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi, welcome to Series 5, Episode 16. In today's episode, I speak to Ben Breen, and our main focus is how to advocate being evidence-informed without alienating others. We talk about master's courses, engaging with reading and research, and supporting colleagues to do the same. We also talk about the power of groups of teachers getting together to discuss teaching and make real change within a school. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so today I am here speaking to Ben, and as I always do, rather than say anything about Ben myself, I'm going to ask Ben just to, to give us a bit of an overview. Who are you, please, Ben? Hello, uh, I'm I'm Ben Breen. I'm the Assistant Head of Mathematics at a, um, a selective school in Kent, and I actually started as a, as a physics teacher rather than a maths teacher, uh, and moved my way through leadership um, through the science department, and then crossed no man's land a few years ago into the maths department. Um, and I think that gives me quite an interesting perspective, perhaps, because math and science are very similar knowledge domains in that they're noticing patterns. But I think at least they're taught quite differently. If I'm in a science classroom, it feels very different. Hopefully I can sort of bring that. And then perhaps a bit more relevant to the podcast, uh, I recently completed an MA in science education at UCL as well. Nice. Lots for us to talk about there. And I definitely want to hear about why you've ended up changing subjects and how that's happened because I think I think there's probably something interesting in that but before we get to that I'll ask you the same question I ask everybody what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? I think from page to practice means to me taking what can be quite abstract research findings and asking yourself what will work in my context that means my classroom with my students but also my school with my demographic and also what is feasible for me to do, given workload demands, given other things pushing and pulling in each direction. So I guess it's, it's for me, about recognising that I want to be research-informed rather than research-led. And what I mean by that is like, I think of t- teaching as an art form, which is perhaps weird as a science-y, maths-y person to say. You know, I, I like knowing why what I'm doing works, but I also very much like feeling like it's it's authentic and congruent with who I am as a person. I like it. I particularly like the research-led, research-informed kind of distinction there. I think that's a really important distinction to make. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. So the main thing we were going to talk about today is is more or less how to change a culture in a school or CPD-related culture in a school towards the more evidence-led or evidence-informed, getting the right way around, without alienating other people, right? Is that more or less what you were hoping to discuss today? Yeah, that's right, yeah. But it's sort of about being an evangelist for evidence without being that annoying person sat in the room saying, actually, the evidence says every couple of minutes. <laughs> I like that. I really like that. So before we kind of delve into that that main conversation, I'm going to go back to the, the the change of subject thing just to to see kind of that how that links into everything really. So what what um how did you end up doing that? Was it a choice or more by, you know, necessity or Oh, I think I'd always taught in both subjects a bit and I'd always enjoyed teaching both subjects. Like when I did my degree in physics, I was quite theoretical, so I was very very mathsy anyway, and I'd always enjoyed maths when I was at school. And I trained to teach physics and maths rather than physics with science, which is the more common route. Um, so I'd always taught a little bit, but it only ever been sort of two or three lessons of year seven maths a year. Um, but then I'd been head of physics for a few years. I felt like I'd sort of I'd had an impact, and I was I was working quite well in that team. But the opportunity to help run the maths faculty at my school came up. 
Um, and I was asked if I'd like to do it as I'd worked in the department. I knew lots of people. Um, and I said, yeah, that's, that sounds like a, a good challenge, sort of a, a much bigger impact to have in a way because everyone studies maths. Um, and it was sort of a, a whole school rather than the, a key stage five focused subject responsibility at my school. And so I jumped to, at the opportunity to have a more, more of an impact, really. I do still teach a bit of physics, but now it's the other way around. It's a few lessons of physics a week and mostly maths. Right. Okay. So in terms of your, I don't know, your your development as a teacher or your approach to teaching, would you say there's been something distinct about the two or is it quite similar? I think when I first moved across from teaching science to teaching maths, I was quite surprised by the way I had to change the structure of my explanations, um, which actually wasn't what I'd expected at all. But I found in science, I was very reliant on analogy and rooting things back in the real world in a way that in maths didn't quite work a lot of the time. There's a place for analogy in mathematics, but I found a lot more of the math teaching I was doing was about modelling my thought processes. Here's a problem. Here's what tells me the right approach to take. Here's how I know the next step. And then I found that worked again in science and I could allow them to reinforce one another. But it definitely at first it felt like it almost felt like starting as a new teacher again. It was mostly new content and it was a very different approach. The other thing I noticed was independent practice was much bigger in, in my math lessons than it had been in my science lessons. I think that's really interesting and I think actually probably has given you something really valuable in terms of when you're supporting others across a, a wider school setting. Do you think it's given you kind of an increased understanding on how to support people in other subjects because you've been the the one moving across and trying to grasp something different yourself? I think so. I think it's definitely helpful to have had the experience of perhaps being a bit less secure in the knowledge that I was delivering and almost having been through the like, oh, God, what do I do? Where do I find my planning? Twice over. And I think it's also made me a lot more confident in the advice that I can give, because rather than it just having worked in my physics lessons and then being fine, actually, if I think this is effective, I've used it often with very different groups of students, um, perhaps different age groups, but also with very different of areas of knowledge and, and folk, knowledge focuses as well. So I think it it has helped me helping staff in other departments. And I think it's also just helpful that science and math departments tend to be some of the biggest in a secondary school. So I've spoken to a lot of staff and I've had a lot of experience giving advice and taking advice from lots of different people. So I, yeah, enriching, I guess, is the word. It gives me a, a wider range of experiences to draw on. Yeah, I think that's really valuable, especially when we're talking about today, you know, how to how to go about some of these things without alienating people when you've had a bit of that experience of possibly feeling a bit alienated yourself when you first start in something new. I think that's probably really, really valuable. Before we move kind of more into, into that, um, you mentioned you've recently been, you've been studying for a master's or you completed a master's. That's right, yeah. I, I completed it um, just after, after all the lockdowns were over, so about, about 18 months, two years ago now. Um, but it didn't feel like that long ago. I, yeah, I did it in, in science education at the UCL Institute of Education. I know, I didn't know that even existed. So that's really interesting that it's education, but specifically into a subject. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I, I think it was quite a small cohort. There are only sort of 20 people doing it, and I think it's quite quite rare. But in essence, what it looked like was um, several compulsory modules that focused specifically on educational research in the science classroom. So there was a lot of talk about, um, and we might come on to this a bit later, but there was a lot of talk about um, like experimental work and students' conceptions of what it means to be a scientist, and then how that related to the wider, the wider subject and wider education as well. Um, and I found actually almost everything we talked about was very relevant to my maths classroom too. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting way of of looking at educational research through a very specific lens. No, I think that's really interesting because I hear, you know, quite often people on social media, for example, thinking about master's courses and thinking, oh, do I do it in education or do I do it in my subject? And I'd never heard that of people doing it, it, it kind of in, in both. And that just, it seems very logical and a very good idea. But I just think, actually, I don't know if that 
exists in all subjects or if that's maybe something fairly new or do you think you gain something quite different from doing it that way than doing a specific master's in education or in your subject? I think so. I think because the beginning of the master's programme, I was with science teachers and the sort of the science faculty at UCL. So I had a much firmer focus at the beginning. And then as the master's wore on, um, I worked through modules that had everyone doing any education master's, either because it was compulsory for everyone or because it was optional for everyone. And so I think it was quite nice to have a very specific focus and then just continue zooming out throughout the course. Um, so that my research could then look at, I compared science and mathematics teaching, but they could then look at, at things from a science perspective, but with so much knowledge from other areas of, of knowledge, of, uh, of subject areas as well. I think that's great. It sounds like you got the best of both worlds there, really. And and a lot of people, when I say a lot of people, I think things of perceptions have, have somewhat changed, but there are people who might say, why did you do that? What on earth did you get out of it? Was it worth it? So for you, why, what did make you decide, yeah, I'm going to do a master's course and are you pleased you did it? What do you feel like the the main, the most tangible thing you've got out of it, I guess? I think my honest answer is that I just really enjoyed it. Um, it was just really good to have an evening once a week where I read some research, went and discussed it with people that were nothing to do with my school. Um, and it definitely wasn't a break from education, but it was a break from the day-to-day of education to take a much more zoomed-out perspective. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, actually. I I did it because I thought, oh, well, I've enjoyed reading a few books about education, and I'm quite interested in this, but I feel like quite a novice. Um, you know, this is a good way to to give myself a structure to become much more knowledgeable. Actually, I, I did just find it really enjoyable to build those connections with people and to take time to to think about things on a philosophical level in a way you can't quite do when year 10 are sort of that they're trying to work through their algebra for the for the 25th minute of the lesson <laughs> I'm really pleased you said that actually because I feel like there are a lot of people who would say oh yeah well what did you get with from it there's lots of people that have done masters but have they got anything you know you know that they, they've not got a promotion from it or they've not got this from it and I think that's just totally the way wrong way to look at it I think the way it enhances you overall and then the effect that 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 probably has on you moving on and doing other things more than just the the masters itself being that ticket I think people see you know the the MPQs potentially as being more of a a ticket to the next step and and I think the masters can be can be viewed in a, in a different way so I'm pleased you put it that way because I think that kind of yeah that that uh, that that resonates with with what I already thought about why we do a masters yeah I think definitely the reason to do it is the enjoyment rather than the promotion prospects it did undeniably make me a better teacher it made me better at articulating why I was doing what I was doing but it also changed what I was doing in so many ways but I'm not sure that's the reason I, I would ever go and do it there are probably much easier ways that don't involve writing lots of long essays and meeting deadlines to get that that knowledge that makes you sound impressive at interview I just, yeah it was just great fun Oh, I totally agree. And I think there's a degree of, of professional confidence that it gives you to go, okay, I, I, I'm going to do this thing and I've got these four reasons why I've chosen to do this particular thing and you can feel a bit more, yeah, it's confidence in what you're doing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I definitely found that. I think one of the things that it, it facilitated for me actually is it made me much more confident to say to people that I didn't work with normally, can I come and watch you teach? Um, and that was a really interesting thing is I was just genuinely interested in like, how is it different in different classrooms? And I remember going to see a drama teacher and thinking there's so much you're doing here that works so well. One of the things I, I noticed was that he would change the student's posture every time they did a different activity. And that's quite easy in drama because you move to a different area of the room or you sit down. Or, But I thought, well, that's quite a nice way, actually, of refocusing the mind and signalling sort of a shift in activity and a shift in expectations and there were hundreds of things like that that I probably never would have said oh can I come just watch you because I'm interested because I could say oh I've been thinking about this on my master's can I come and watch you it was a much easier way to get into that I guess yeah absolutely and would you say that um 
Would you say that evidence-informed practice was something you were interested in prior to the Masters or it's something you feel you've got more engaged with since? I think both. I think um, I think I was definitely interested in it. I, what I found before the Masters in particular, what I found fascinating about reading evidence was so much of it was saying, or was me saying, oh, I sort of do that, but I could make it better. It was a lot, a lot of, and this is what I say to people when I talk about evidence, it was a lot of confirming that my instincts were sort of correct, but because I now knew how it was working, I could make my pro- my approach much more efficient, I guess, and effective. Um, and when I had to make compromises and things like that, I, I knew much more which compromising route I would take. So I always had that interest, but I think the Masters, it was just so useful to get back into engaging with research on a more academic level, I think. And and again, I, I think I said it before, but the structure was so helpful to me just to know that, well, every week I am going to be engaging with three research papers and then having a discussion, that sort of thing. I'm not the best person at sticking to let's let's do that. But if there's a deadline that someone else is holding me to account for, very useful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially, you know, in teaching, it can be very easy to go, no, I don't have time to do that particular thing. And actually, if you carve out that time for it, because it's important to you, as you clearly did, but you've got something holding you to account for it, it does make you, it does make you do it a bit more than it would do otherwise, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so where am I going with this then? So, um, when you've spoken to other people about doing the masters, I guess I'm kind of going on to the what about colleagues who are reluctant to engage with this kind of thing? Do you, have you had have you had a generally you know positive response to this kind of thing, or do some people think well, why are you doing that? Or I think it depends where you're talking about it. I think I've generally had quite a positive response if it's people choosing to talk to me about it, um, or or people that I know well. I think you don't always get as positive a response if it's a whole staff briefing on a Monday morning and you're just sort of stood at the front. Um, And I think for me, what I've learned in those situations is that it's important to recognise that this is a passion and that I enjoy reading a research paper and reading their research methods and working out what's worked and seeing their data actually there are lots of teachers that are very good at their jobs that just want to know what they should do and why it is working or how to optimize their approach and so I think I think it depends on the context you're having the conversation in but I think there are lots of teachers that are just thinking oh come on you don't need to tell me about all of this like what's the finding what's the key result Um, and yeah that briefing on a Monday morning is what I always think about is they're probably thinking about the next five lessons ahead of them and their duty and the homework they haven't marked and the planning they've got left to do so maybe it is just a quick reminder we're going to be focusing on this rather than a passionate speech that I'm really interested in. (laughs) I think there's a good balance there as well isn't there I spoke to someone in one of these previous episodes about being kind of the and the way we put it was being the kind of teaching and learning geek in your school because you're really into everything and people know that you're the person to come to because you you know maybe you engage on Twitter or you know where the best podcasts and blogs are to be found and that kind of thing but without necessarily having that the job title for it and do you think people take things differently when it's a a a colleague on a level pegging that's talking to them about these things as opposed to the teaching and learning lead talking about it do you think there's something you to to support that building of a different culture in a school do you think there's a difference between the people talking about it and on different levels I think so I think there are positive and negative differences I think that if it's just the colleague that's really interested, that feels like a very low stakes conversation. So I think both when I'm having those conversations with other people about my teaching and when people are talking to me, it's much easier to say, actually, you know what, I'm really struggling with this or this is a thing that hasn't quite worked for me or I know the research says this, I tried it, it didn't work. And I wonder what I did wrong. And that's, that low stakes nature is really beneficial but then I also think there is a great benefit to it feeling like the school is endorsing an evidence-informed approach because I think a lot of a lot of reading research and transferring it into the classroom is about taking a risk 
And I think it can be quite hard to take that risk if you feel like the school would rather you just kept plodding along. Um, my school's quite effective and successful in its exam results. And that can lead to a real fear of changing anything because things have gone really well. There's not necessarily a need to do so. So if the research ste steers me in a direction, like having the confidence to do that is so much easier if you know that the school have backed the idea of reading research, the idea of trying things out, that there's support in place, I guess. Absolutely. It needs the balance of both, doesn't it? It needs the the person at the at the forefront saying, this is what we're doing. You know, we're going to look into this research more and this is how we're going to change things. But it needs the person on the ground, as it were, to be saying, yeah, this is doable and this is why. And actually, yeah, I agree with them. It needs a bit of both as opposed to, you know, just having that person on the ground who's who loves it is great, but won't necessarily make the whole kind of system change. And just having the person who's at the top tends to be where it becomes, oh, no, they're changing another thing. You're like, do we have to do this? So, yeah, needs both, doesn't it? So I, I think you've, you've said kind of talk about, you know, evangelising the benefits of, of evidence. So where do you want to go with this conversation? What sorts of things have you done or been involved in that, that we can have a little talk about? Um, well, I think probably the biggest impact thing I've done in my school, which sort of follows on from now, the last question in a way, um, is uh, an evidence-informed reading group that I I launched to, at the beginning of this year at my school, um, and I'm looking to continue in it and expand out over the next few years. Um, I know that a number of schools are, are trying different things with reading groups and discussion groups at the moment, um, but I have found it really useful to get the people who aren't responsible for teaching and learning, which includes me, in a room that are interested in teaching and learning, and just to have really interesting conversations about what's working and what what isn't working. So I think maybe that's a good thing to to talk talk a bit about. Sure. So how how have you gone about that then? Tell us just the you know the nuts and the bolts of what is it you actually do? Yeah. So the the way it works in essence is that twice every half term we meet as a a group of people for about thirty or forty minutes um, to talk about some research that we have read. Um, now, in my context, uh, I felt with the people that I was setting this group up with that probably that looks more like reading an educational book than it does look at reading an educational journal article because it's easier to pick out the here's what I do in the classroom from that. And I have found that's been quite successful, um, particularly the the Research in Action series that, that John Catt published. Um, so this year we we did Cognitive Load Theory in Action by Ollie Lovell and then um, Generative Learning in Action by by Zoe and Mark Enser. Um, and in essence, the group will read about a 30 to 40 minute section um, independently. And uh, me or uh, Jess, who I was working with, um, will have written some questions that promote reflection. And often that takes the form of, this is an advocated for approach. What would that look like with a key stage three class? How might it be different with key stage five? Uh, or it might look like, you know, which of these six approaches do you imagine is best for a history teacher? What about for a maths teacher? Something like that. And then we just meet and with some coffee and some cakes that the school very kindly pays for, we sit down at the end of a day and, and have a chat about the section of the book that we've just read. I think those um, those inaction books are great for that, and I've I've spoken about that on a previous episode as well. But I did the same thing in the in the last school I worked in, and we used exactly one one of do one of those. Do we even do two of those books in the end? But either way, because they make really good structure for it, don't they? You know, it's really clear, it's concise, it's easy to pick up, and then you can have that really valuable conversation afterwards. So, is that something you're going to hope to continue into into the next academic year? Yes, definitely. So the, the plan is that the group goes on. And actually, it was it was very rewarding to see there was a real enthusiasm from the group for it to go on. And also to um, like to rally for changes in school policy as a consequence, which is really interesting. So part of the, the next year is some of the things we are reading, particularly in the Generative Learning in Action book, are things we feel would be very useful to discuss with the whole staff. Um, now, I think it's unreasonable to ask a whole staff body to go read a whole book for that purpose. So one of the things I'm doing at the moment is selecting key sections from the book um, to then focus on in some staff inset 
sessions over the course of the year to try and build up effectively what we as the evidence-informed reading group have found are particularly useful things to think about in, in school. And then as a group ourselves, we'll be reading some other books. So my desk is currently covered in books. So I'm trying to work out which, which is the best one to do next. I think that's great. That brings some real like added value to what you've done because, you know, the, the group in itself, even if it had never gone any further than just that group of people, was already hugely valuable because anyone sat in that group is getting something from it. But to then be able to and to clearly have the, the support within the school that says, yeah, actually, you've read this stuff. It makes some good points. Let's try and take it further than that. I think is is fantastic because I'm sure that wasn't the the intention when you started, but you've almost formed a teaching and learning working group at the same time. There, I think it's a it's a a great development. Yeah, as I say, I was incredibly surprised when we got to the end of the first book. The conversation naturally led to what do we want to go and tell SLT from this book. And we came up with a list of, of things. And then when, when we went and had that conversation, it was, okay, how do we implement? It was very supportive. It was, it, yeah, it was, it was really nice to see because my only intention with the group really was to just get a load of people from different subjects in a room to talk and, and share experiences that wouldn't I – th- I think my school has offices for subjects, so I'm in the maths office. And there is a staff room, but you go there at break or lunch, but you're not you're not there as often as as you would like to facilitate conversation. So it was selfishly, I guess, me getting people I wanted to talk to in a room um, and then having those conversations. So it's incredibly rewarding to see, yeah, an enthusiasm for getting it out into the school and support from above to get that out into the school as well. I think there's something really empowering about that kind of thing as well, about being able to to read something like that and have the confidence to then take it forward because that's something I think has gone by the wayside in the past, people feeling that they can challenge school policy or that they can suggest new things. I think one thing that the wave I guess of this kind of teacher-led CPD whether that's blogs or podcasts or books is really bringing is that ability for people to do their own research to read around an area and go no actually I don't think what we're doing is right and here's you know and not everybody feels confident enough to do that but do you have a a similar view that you know that the the reading of the self-led CPD is is empowering in that way? Absolutely. I I think both in terms of building confidence, because you're not just saying this is wrong. I want to do something else. You are saying I've read this thing and it's made me think this. Um, And I think also it's a much easier sell, therefore, to the people that are ultimately making those decisions. It's not just this one teacher that, you know, maybe has got a bit excited about something like it is backed by a whole community that are you know, have written a book and a a comic talking about the book and having that discussion. I think it's incredibly powerful because ultimately those teachers are the teachers that are on the front line. You know, as I've begun to move up the leadership ladder um, and and do a bit less teaching, you have less awareness of what's happening in, in classrooms on the ground. And if you go in and watch, you often distort what's happening in the classroom by your presence, the student's might try to be a bit nicer or a bit quieter. I often find they just go silent because they don't want to get in trouble for anything. So you don't get that full snapshot. So I think it's it is so important to listen to like to teachers that are just in the classroom and finding that something isn't working, but having then a shared language to say, look, this book agrees with me. These group of teachers agree with me is so powerful. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um Something occurred to me a minute ago, actually. So the the group of teachers that have been coming together, has it been very much a voluntary thing that some people just happen to have come along? Has it been you've tried to convince a few more people? Or has it been for now you're sticking with those people that just really wanted to be there? So the, the way it worked was it was opt-in, um, but it was it was done in it was done at a very good time to encourage opt-in. And what I mean by that is that the appraisal system in our school. Um, targets are set sort of around about the October half term time and I secured a slot in staff briefing where I went along and I said here are the book here's the book I want to read it'd be great if a group of us could get together look at how thin the book is it will not take loads of your time and what a brilliant appraisal target to say that you're going to engage in discussions and then report back to your department Um, 
And that was really all I said. But I think it came at a very good time where lots of people then did put that down on their, their appraisal form and it got that buy-in. Um, and I think if anyone were looking to set up a group like that, having school buy-in is so important for getting teachers to come along. Um, my school agreed to buy the books for teachers, um, which I think is important because you can write on it. You've got something in return. You have ownership of that process a lot more and also to pay for refreshments at the meetings. Um, and I think both of those are big selling points, actually, because I could say appraisal's coming up. The school is clearly on board because they're putting money into it. It's not too much work and we should be able to make a genuine difference. And I think that was a really good sell. Moving forward, I think it'd be great if we had a representative from every department. Um, at the moment, we have most departments represented. And it, realistically, it's a busy school. You know, we're not getting the same people at every single session. Um, but we tend to tend to cover most of our bases. But I think I've learned so much from talking to the geography department about how they would they would implement um, cold call questioning in, in a different way to how I might in my maths classroom or from languages departments when we were talking about um, visualization as a as a revision technique and, and all sorts of things like that that I never would have anticipated. Um, it would. I'm just trying to get as many people in as possible, and then if the budget for cake goes up, hopefully the school will be okay with that. <laughs> I like it. I think that's actually a really good, really good kind of hook buy-in. Because actually, you know what? There might be people there who went, mm, for example, somebody who might have thought, "I've got no idea what I'm going to do for my target. Why not just do it?" And who've actually, over the course of the year, gone, "Oh, actually, I've really enjoyed this." Like they might be the type of people that will then be more interested in future. They'll carry on coming even when it's not their target. You know, that's that's not always going to happen. You've probably got at least one person who was there for their target and is still just there for their target. But if you've taken a couple more people along the kind of journey with you, then um, that's been a really valuable difference to have made. Absolutely. And I think it's no bad thing to have someone that might be a bit more opposed to the ideas being raised either. Research must stand up to scrutiny. And I think as a teacher, it's quite easy to get sucked into this is the next big thing. I'm so excited. Um, so I, I think it's no bad thing to have someone saying, well, actually, I quite like what I'm doing currently. And it's easier that someone does that legitimately than that, like I try and make myself do that in my head. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, having that, that even if it's just one teacher who will question it and go, no, I don't agree with that, can actually spark more of a discussion and, and, and take it places that it might not have even gone in the first place. So well worth having a, a good spread of people there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just thinking, is there anything else I wrote down? I don't think there is. So before we move into the final section, is there anything else you were hoping to talk about that we haven't yet? There may well be something I've missed. I think I think that pretty much is everything. Everything there. Something did occur to me just as, as you were speaking then um, about the sort of dissenting opinions. It's one thing I have found really useful for like reflection prompts is to try and get people to come up with objections. So th the book says this. Why might this not work in a classroom? How could we work around it? Because I think we're quite, you know, it is a self-selecting group of people that ultimately have chosen to read the book. Um, so it is always good to, to try and, and force yourself to, to challenge what the book is arguing. The opportunities to have those questions and the challenge are just a really invaluable, I think, that and you don't always get that, although noticeably more and more edu books now are putting in questions at the end of chapters and that kind of thing, almost to in encourage that, which for teachers, because, you know, there'll be people listening now who are in schools where this isn't an option for them. They, they don't they don't think they could set it up themselves, or at least they think if they did, they'd be the only person sat in a room waiting. Um but want to be able to engage. So the opportunity to be able to use those questions to to do that alone is, is important for them. So yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes you you get these opportunities and sometimes it just it doesn't quite work out. Depends on the school and, and the setting and all the rest of it, doesn't it, yeah, I guess? Absolutely. So before we move into that final section, our CPD library round, um, if anybody wanted to continue this conversation with you, is there a good way of speaking to you? Are you on any social media or anything like that? Yeah, I'm probably for education. I, I spend most of my time on Twitter um, or whatever it's called now. Yeah. Um, it's uh, at BenBreen14, um, which I think I just picked randomly, but it's nice that it rhymes. 
Yeah. Uh, my my intention is to um, I'm doing a research ed talk in early September about the the book group, um, and I assume this will go out after that probably. But my intention is to publish the materials that I've used to run that group. So if you were looking at doing cognitive load theory or generative learning or whatever I end up doing next year, you can just steal those questions and those presentations and things. But yeah, more than happy to have a chat about that at any point. That's great. Yeah, you're right. This episode will have slipped out after that. It'll be mm, mid-October, I think. So by by the time you're listening to this, there's probably some things out that Ben shared that you can can take a look at and research Ed slides and all the rest of it. So um, that'll be good. Thanks. Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. The CPD library round then. So this round was always intended as being a quick fire round. And then I realised that that was a silly idea because one, most people that I've spoken to haven't been able to stick to just giving me one example of anything. Um, And then people want to talk about why they love that particular book or person or podcast. So that all went out the window. Uh, So take it however you like. Um, I've got a list of categories and you can give a book, a podcast, a person to follow on social media whatever you think is relevant for you is that all right yep perfect in that case the first one is first got you into evidence-informed practice i think we just mentioned research ed and i think actually for me it was one of the research ed conferences i think it was the one in london but it could have been elsewhere very early into my teaching career uh, i remember i think there were the assistant head of science uh, at the time, coming and, and saying, have you heard about this conference? You should go to it. Um, and at the time, the school I was at saying, oh, we're not going to fund that. You like, We don't think that's very worthwhile. But buying a ticket because this other person was going, they'd said it was good. And I just remember sitting in loads of talks thinking, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Why didn't I learn this in teacher training? Um, and like, my life would have been so much easier if, I'd, if you'd said this to me a year ago. Um, and I think that's what sparked it all, really. I bought a couple of books at that conference and started reading and, and a few years later was doing a master's, so it's, it's no bad thing. I think Research Ed has got a lot to answer for in terms of people uh, buying books and signing up for qualifications, for sure. Um, <laughs> what's my next one? Resonated with you the most? Uh, it's, it's one of the books I bought at that time, actually. It's, um, it's The Learning Rainforest by Tom Sherrington. Um, I just that's the thing that really felt like it had almost looked into into my mind and written down what I thought about why we're doing anything in a classroom, why we bother. It talks about the idea that to have all the nice, exciting things you want in a classroom where people are sort of learning how to collaborate and they're learning how to sort of think in a scientific way or in a mathematical way and how to critique, you need the fundamentals really nailed down first you need routines you need behavior you need foundational knowledge you need you know people to understand how learning happens and so I I found yeah it it was almost like having a conversation with myself but with so much more like and why don't you try this at the end of every page Oh, that's one I'd forgotten about, actually. I think I've done a, a past in in the past format of this podcast an episode on it, but it's one of those ones you just I'd forgotten about. Yeah. Um challenged your views. Mm. Um this is something I read for my for my master's in science education. Um and it's gonna sound very sciencey, but actually I think it's really relevant for everyone. It's called Practical Work in Secondary Science by Ian Abrahams. And it it sort of confirmed a nagging suspicion I had which was when I was doing lots of practical lessons in my classroom, it sort of felt inefficient and quite ineffective. Um, And the way he uses in the book is he says, almost all of us can remember doing the alkali metals experiment when we were at school, where you put an alkali metal in some water, it fizzes, it might light up, it might go bang, depending on how responsible your teacher is, it might blow up the container it's in. Um, which I think is what happened at mine. And we often remember that bit, but we don't remember any of the science associated with it about reactivity or about what the reaction looks like or or anything like that. Um, And he argues that the traditional idea of a science practical lesson, which is here's a method, go do some things, write down your findings, is often very ineffective. 
effective because pupils remember the wrong thing. Um, and that made me look at so much of my teaching because he is absolutely right. And what he argues for is try and simplify the experiment to be a bit more basic. Front load your lesson with direct instruction and explanation. Um, then let them play around with the equipment for a bit. Do some questioning to focus back on the science itself. Then try and draw some conclusions and then some direct instruction at the end to ensure everyone's on the same page. Um, and I think actually when I think about how I teach maths, that's also how I teach maths now as well is here's some fun things. Let's try and do them with something else. Okay, now let's come back and make sure we're all back on the same page again. So I think I don't really hear anyone talk about it, but it's a really, really interesting book. Yeah, I think you're right about it being really applicable to other subjects that even that aren't necessarily practical, especially when you said about, you know, they, they walk away remembering the wrong things. They've just remembered that something went bang. They don't know what went bang. They can't remember why it went bang. It's a bit like the, I'm trying to think of examples that I've seen before, building castles or using biscuits for something. They've, they've only remembered the process of their paper mache castle or the biscuit they got to eat as opposed to the thing that they really needed to get from it so yeah you're right that's that's a really applicable one and from the title most people would think oh not applicable to me you know an English teacher a maths teacher a languages teacher would go, oh practical we don't do practicals that's not a thing and gloss over it so I think we've all got a lot to take from things that are written for other subject areas uh what's the next one challenge your views Ooh, uh that was challenge my views wasn't it oh have i missed it yeah <laughs> yeah so. sorry yes. <laughs> um, I'm repeat myself. Yeah. <laughs> had the biggest impact on your practice um i think it's it's probably quite a common one for this rosenshine's principles in action mm-hmm. um i think one of the first education books i ever read and it was just so clearly laid out so easy to implement in my practice um, and so so very simple for me to understand the actual principles and I think the book itself has the paper in it at the back as well so it sort of got me into reading reading research as well and thinking about sort of what might be missed out when you try and translate it into a more accessible format. And the beginning of that whole in action series and we know what we think of, of, of yes. those so <laughs> and now I'm actually pointing at the right one so I asked the right <laughs> one this time should be required reading for early career teachers or trainee teachers I think this is such a hard one to do um, I, I've settled on making every lesson count by Sean Allison and, and Andy Tharby as well um, I just think that book is so good at breaking down what you see in the classroom as a student or as a teacher and telling you why it works and how to make it better I think for me, that is the clearest book for just understanding the mechanics of what it means to be a teacher. Um, and so I think I think that's probably where I, I would look to begin. I think it is a great book. And reading that alongside your subject-specific one as well, because there's lots mm. of those out now, aren't there? Yes. I think there's a primary one as well. So reading the – I wouldn't say read the subject-specific one on its own. I think you, you need to read the two together to get the – the concept of the book and then read the the subject specific one but yeah that's a really yeah, good one i'd agree with that um inspired you um i tried to pick something that was as recent as possible um for, for inspiration here and, and what's inspiring at the moment actually uh, this is sort of a roundabout anecdote that comes back to something um, okay. <laughs> i went on a on a school trip to france recently and i have a gcse in french and i tried desperately to speak french to them and twice I had people go straight back into English and, and give up even allowing me to attempt French and I thought that was such a shame that I'd spent so long working on French and it all seemed to have almost fallen by the wayside so I got back from the trip and I signed up to Duolingo and I started doing uh, doing these and Duolingo put a blog out a couple of weeks ago where they said um, we believe implicit learning which they sort of oppose against explicit learning is the way forward which is a headline that got my attention and, and immediately made me think I don't really agree with that. Um, but it's made me think an awful lot about how important motivation and self-efficacy are, because Duolingo argue that they don't ever explicitly teach you. Now, I don't agree with that. I think they do a lot of retrieval practice, a lot of variation theory. There's an awful lot of explicit teaching in there, 
But what they mean is they don't have a lesson and then you apply it. You're just applying things the whole way through. And I can sort of see their point, but I think that has only worked for me because I believe I can get better if I try and because I am enjoying and engaging with the activities and deliberately making them harder for myself than they need to be by like really thinking and struggling and continuing to push. And so I picked this for inspired me because I'm going back in September thinking, I will motivation of course is important, but actually it's probably the most central thing and thinking a lot more about how I develop that from the beginning rather than hoping it sort of comes along as as I get to know students a bit more. Oh, there's so many things I've taken from there and I don't know where to go with it. First one was it was nice that it's a, an article that's come from an unexpected source. When mm. you went on to Duolingo, oh, Duolingo blog, okay, great. So it's nice to have something that's come from somewhere different to the usual channels. That was the first thing. The other thing was uh, from a language perspective, they do it to those of us with degrees in the language. It's it, Don't be too disheartened. It happens all the right. time. <laughs> <laughs> Very used to being spoken back to in, in English anyway. And it's frustrating and I get that. And part of the, the, I think the struggle language teachers have is, well, I tried it, but they spoke back to me in English. So there's, there's another, there's another struggle there. And the motivation thing, and that's, you know, that could be a whole other conversation of an episode of motivation, but the, I think different subjects need motivation in different ways. So English mm. and maths, for example, although maths, you might tell me I'm wrong here, a certain amount of students will probably think, well, I have to have this subject, so there's their motivation. Whereas science, for example, or languages or another subject, there's there's something different that needs to be worked on there in terms of motivation, isn't there? So that that one article you've mentioned sparked so many different things yeah. in my head as you were talking about it. <laughs> Um, I've got three more, I think. Yeah. Most recent read or listen or something. I'm just finishing up on, um, the sweet spot explain, uh, explanation and modeling with precision by, uh, Michael Childs, uh, which I, yeah. it's been sat on my bookshelf for about six months and I, I finally picked it off and it's just a really clear, it sort of breaks down everything you could possibly want to know about how to improve your explanations as a teacher from where you would sit people in the room to how you would plan your curriculum to what you actually do when you're giving that explanation uh, and to what that looks like in, in different classrooms. So that's been an interesting read. So if that one's been sat on the to be to be read pile for a little mm. while, what's the next one down? What's the next read after this one? I've got so many. I, I have a <laughs> yeah. habit of, of buying things, particularly on a Kindle that are very cheap, and then they sit there for a while. Um, I think one that I've I've had for a little while and I think I, I need to get round to that is Successful Difficult Conversations in School um, by Sonia Gill. Um, because I think I've thought about my own practice and I think having conversations with staff where I'm motivating but also driving change forward and then I'm building relationships is probably a thing that I've just sort of picked up by existing in a school rather than anyone ever saying, here's how you do this. So I, I bought that on, on a whim. Uh, I think it was Serge Kent, perhaps, or something like that, because I liked I liked the idea of it, and, and that's probably where I'll go next. But I've also had Craig Barton's How I Wish I'd Taught Maths um, sat staring at me for the whole summer. Um, so I, it's, it'll be one of those two, I suspect. I nearly got a whole way through an episode without a mention of Craig Barton. Honestly, I'm pretty <laughs> sure every episode he's either come up as uh, an author or someone mentioning his podcast or it, it's he's just one of those names that comes up and we've got yeah. 46 minutes in and there comes his name. <laughs> um, there's something else I thought there. Yeah, actually, interesting to think about, you know, you said about the difficult conversations is something you picked up just by existing in a school and actually possibly something you'd not really put that much thought into. And I mm -hmm. wonder how many other things are out there that we 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 just kind of pick up along the way that we could be doing better if if we, you know, took some, some time into them. And that's a really good example yeah. because that's something that everyone ends up doing, whether that's with another staff member or a student or a parent. But to have something a little more tangible to tell us how to do it well might be might be quite beneficial. So oh, interesting to hear how that one goes. Mm -hmm. 
And then the last one then, and people have taken this this one slightly different ways, is doesn't exist but should. So it could be that there's an area that you wish when you first started teaching there'd been a book about because that would have really helped you. Or there's an area you're interested in and there's bits and pieces out there but nothing all in one place. Or just a book you genuinely think you'd really like to read. So, yeah, doesn't exist but should. I've got... I think I've got two for this, possibly. I think the Great. first one that, that probably could exist, but I haven't found out there anywhere, is the cognitive science of sort of pastoral care. Um, oh, so okay. the more emotional development of students and how that impacts them in the classroom and how as a teacher that doesn't spend an awful lot of time with, with any one individual student, you can really work at developing that pastoral relationship and, and use that to effectively to turn them from children to functioning adults is is the idea um but i haven't been able to find anything out there i've read lots of blogs and things that do very well at that but a whole book i think would be a great thing thing to have that's already that's a good that's made me think i need to put a tweet out of you know i've put a tweet out recently if i need people in this 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 and this that i've had Mm. requests for now i want to put one somebody working in a pastoral role that feels they've got yeah, right. Okay, I'm going to take that one off yeah. in my head. Yep. Okay. And your second idea was? I've got a more pie in the sky one. I was just oh. thinking, what would I genuinely <laughs> like to read? Um, I was thinking, well, actually, there are there are loads of teachers at my school that I would just sort of like to read their collected wisdoms of like, here's how I teach this one thing. Here's the example I always use with students. Here's the analogy that really works really well. And that in practice, that that doesn't work. But like a big brain dump of here's everything that works. And I guess the message I've taken from that is go and watch as many people as as you can and pick up and magpie as many tips from as many people as possible. I like it. Great. Thank you. So that kind of brings us, us all to a close. Is there anything else that you're thinking, oh, no, I haven't had a chance to say this before we finally wrap up? No, I, th- I think that's everything. I think, yeah, everything I wanted to say. Great. In that case, thank you very much for joining me. And um, yeah, thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Are you interested in evidence-informed practice? Do you have a favourite edu book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to primary deputy head called Nathan about moving into leadership. At the moment, I think this series is likely to run out in early December. It would be great to keep it going a bit longer towards the end of term. So if you've been tempted to sign up, then please do. I'd never spoken to Ben at all before today, not even via Twitter, and we were able to have a great conversation. So please do sign up. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.